Hey, if you miss the signs out front, we're talking about the sacredness of sex in marriage and what that means for singles who aren't. I'm going to do my best to honor scripture and speak respectfully. But if you're thinking I'd like to listen to this before I know my kids do, I'm going to pray and you are welcome to uh, go out and uh, take a look at it at another time. Father, I just thank you that we can go to your word, that it shines such light. And I thank you that you are such a good creator and so kind. You create some amazing things for us to experience. Help us to appreciate that. Help us to see the light of your path that leads to life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife and I were leaving our house. I'm going to go for a drive. The mailbox is right there. Lisa grabs the mail. We sit in my car. I'm about to drive off. And Lisa's looking through. And there's this Christian women's magazine that we don't subscribe to. Didn't really know why it was there. But she looks at the cover. You know how they have the teasers there to get you to read it. And one of the articles said, seven tips to make your sex life sizzle. Lisa looks at me. She goes, oh, baby. And she opens it up, finds the article, and and immediately closes it. I go, what? She goes, you wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) That's why they sent it to us. It was a contributor's copy. Um, She's not slamming me. She's just saying, look, if you know it, I know it. It just, why why am I going to bother my time right here? But far beyond, and it's just a ridiculous comparison, far beyond anything I might ever write on that, I'm amazed at what God has written about sex and the way he celebrates it and what he reveals to us. We see not just what he's done, but his passion, even his enthusiasm behind it. I mean, think about this. As important as prayer is, there isn't a single book of the Bible devoted exclusively to prayer. And while finances are all over the Bible, there isn't a single book of the Bible devoted exclusively to how we handle money. But there is one book that has one central focus. And guess what that book is? Song of Songs, you guys are right with me. That's the true name in the Hebrew. And the reason it's important to keep that name is there's an ancient Near Eastern phraseology, something of something, that elevates what's being discussed to the highest level. I'll give you an example. I'm sure you've heard God described as the king of kings. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he's just the wisest of kings or the strongest of kings or the greatest of kings. It means if you were to put all the kings of the universe together, God would still be king of those kings. He's different in kind. No comparison. So think about this. When God wants to speak his truth into marital sexuality between a husband and a wife, what's the phrase used to describe it? Not just the best song, not just one of the most pleasurable songs. It's the song of songs, really no other song like it. It's not the song of Deborah, not the song of David, not the song of Moses. This is pre-Christ. At this point, the song of songs was solely dedicated to the lovemaking of a married couple. And when we think about what married sex represents, it shouldn't surprise us the spiritual analogies we get from it, the way that this just shocks me. We can create another human being who shares our DNA. 
what it does for a relationship, what it does to our brains, the fact that it reminds us we are physical beings with bodies that have nerve endings. I mean, we feel so alive. It shouldn't surprise us, if we're honest, that the Bible says there is no other song in human experience quite like this song. And what I love, because this song was written at the inspiration of the Creator, it predates where we think God should have been uh, by, by 3,000 years where, where culture is now because it opens up in Song of Songs chapter one, verse two, by telling us that sexual pleasure is for the wife first. Sex wasn't designed just for the husband to meet his needs or that horrendous teaching that's just necessary to keep him from falling. That the first person, please, the first person who celebrates it in this book is the wife. Song of Songs one, two, says this, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is more delightful than wine. Now the word love there from the Hebrew is dod, D-O-D. It does not refer to romantic love or emotional love. It has nothing to do with a Hallmark movie. It has everything to do with what Hallmark leaves out. It's talking about the actual physical caressing the acts of lovemaking. And this wife is saying, when my husband is caressing me and kissing me and making love to me, I have no, it's greater than wine. Now, we might kind of miss that today because some of you might not even like wine. A lot of you probably don't even drink wine. But I want you to go back 3,000 years and think about how many pleasures a Bedouin woman didn't have. Imagine being a woman 3,000 years ago. Women, when you woke up, there was no caramel macchiato, no star. You didn't even have Folgers, all right? Not invented yet. No dark chocolate. I can't imagine my wife's life without dark chocolate. Not there. In the evening, you chill out after a long day. There were no real housewives of Jerusalem to laugh at and make fun of. There was really only one pleasure a woman could have at that time, and that was wine. And so when women would read this 3,000 years ago when it was first written, they're reading as a testimony of a wife saying, I literally have no higher pleasure. There's no greater joy in life for me than when my husband and I are making love. So right out of the gate, the Bible's saying, this is for women. Marriage is supposed to be mutually pleasurable. It's not just for the husband. One wife took a while to learn this. She grew up in a culture where she didn't think that way. Here's what she said. When I was a teenager, you'd hear boys talking about masturbation and porn and wanting sexual stuff from girls. But my friends and I never talked about sex like that. It was a whole different level of interest. So I grew up thinking sex is for boys, not girls. 15 years of marriage has radically changed her mind. Here's what she said. It wasn't just becoming more knowledgeable about sex. Most importantly, I learned me better. I have to turn off the rest of the world and focus on the moment to not think about children and work and the house. At the start, I'd remind myself, this is what I really want you to take away from this woman's perspective. This is good. This is what the Lord wants for Donnie and me. See, by rooting this in the Song of Songs, sex is always talking about what do I want, what do you want, what do we want? 
And she gets the thing that it's about what does God want? Why did God design this? What does God want us to get out of sexual experience? And we know right from the start, man, we have to listen to this. That because the woman is the first one pleased, sex shouldn't resemble childbirth where she does all the work and we get the baby. It should be like her birthday where she opens up present after present and our greatest delight is seeing how she's satisfied by the gifts that we give her. That's the biblical view of sex, whether or not you grew up with that notion of sex. But it's not to say, stressing the woman's pleasure, that the man doesn't have a lot of pleasure as well. If you go just seven verses down, it's amazing how it talks about what it does to a man who feels sexually fulfilled. In Song of Songs 1-9, he says this, I liken you, my darling, this is the husband talking, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Okay, we gotta go back 3,000 years again to figure this out. If you were reading this 3,000 years ago, you would know mares never pulled the Pharaoh's chariots. The Pharaoh was like a king in the game of chess. If the Pharaoh went down, the battle was over. More than they fought over land, they fought over rulers. So he had to have the strongest horses, the fastest horses, the horses with the most endurance, which wouldn't have been mares, it would have been stallions. But they had to get creative because their enemies also had stallions. And here's what they discovered. If they harnessed a mare to the stallions, not to pull, just to be in close physical proximity, her presence and her scent would whip the stallions into a sexual frenzy and sexually excited stallions run farther, faster, and longer than stallions that aren't. It's literally how they upped the horsepower thousands of years before there was internal combustion engines. They figured out how to make it work. And he's celebrating this is what it does for him. And look, it's kind of my job to go through these studies. Sociologically, this has been proven time and time again that in a mutually satisfying, sexually fulfilling relationship, husbands and wives have much more satisfaction. They're bonded. The men tend to be far more involved with the children at home. They're more likely to succeed in their vocation because sex outside of marriage becomes an obsession that threatens your vocation. It threatens your ability to pray because you close your eyes and you're tempted instead of seeking out the voice, the sound, the wisdom, the truth, the glory of God. But what this tells us, men, is that we have to be careful because the reverse is also true. Any act, men, any act of sexuality outside of marriage does the reverse of what God designed it to do. Because the way sex works, the finishing of sex is such a powerful human experience. There's really nothing else like it. It always makes us want more of the same. Now God designed that intentionally because it does such good things in marriage. But outside of marriage, if we start to enjoy anything sexually outside of marriage, instead of cherishing our wife, instead of sex drawing us toward our wife, we're gonna resent our wife. Because when she's there, we can't act out. And it's gonna to wanna to make us hide from her and get away from her and lie to her. And men, we cannot, we cannot be intimate with the woman we're lying to. It's the opposite of what intimacy is, being fully known and fully accepted. And so guys, if you ever see yourself looking over your shoulder before you're about to do something or look at something, it better be because you hope your wife is there. 
or sex is starting to tear you down instead of build you up. You're building a wall between you and your wife rather than a bridge to you and your wife. It's really, in one sense, already a spiritual divorce. Now, there's another passage that talks about a guy's delight in his wife. It's not in the Song of Songs. It's in the book of Proverbs, chapter 5, 18 through 19. And here's what is presented in the form of a blessing, even a prayer. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Now the Hebrew word for rejoice is a fascinating choice. Everywhere else in the Old Testament that it's presented, it's about clapping and shouting and even dancing. So it's literally the picture of, here's what God wants for you in marriage. Men, when you're married and you see your wife naked, your response is, all right, this is so cool. This is great. It's not shameful. It's not naughty. It's not lust. It's what God designed your brains to do. In marriage, it's a sacred and holy pleasure because God designed our brains to be visual like that. He created us. He just wants us to focus it on our wives. And in fact, that word captivated, tiska in the Hebrew, is an amazing choice. It's so intense. I don't know that captivated captures it. it one commentator describes it as a morally permissible love ecstasy. A morally permissible love ecstasy. It, it's the picture of a man who's all but struck dumb at the sight of his wife's naked body. She steps out of the shower or slides between the sheets. At that moment, it's all he sees. He doesn't remember if he's rich or poor, if he hates his job or likes his job, if he's sick or healthy, if his team is in first place or last place. All he wants is right there because God designed his brain to be fixated on her. A nuclear bomb could go off next door. He might not even hear it. And if he does, he's likely to say, well, if the world's gonna end, what better way to go, all right? And that's a... Again, the Bible is celebrating this. It's saying, may you ever, please don't lose this, is what it's saying in scripture. Sex outside of marriage is dangerous, but sex within marriage is so wonderful. The Bible is saying, I hope you never lose this fascination because guys, our wives should be cherished by us like this. They should know they light up our eyes like nothing else, like no other woman can. They deserve that. God designed them to experience that. And God designed us to experience the satisfaction of being that way with our wives. Now, women, you won't get this fully because you don't have a man's brain. If I had more time, I would get into the particulars. We don't have time to do that. But let me just give you an example. My wife and I were in California one time and we're going to a trail. I was going to go for a run and Lisa was going to go for a walk. So we pull up. I say, now, hun, now, you got your phone? I didn't want her to be on a trail without a phone. She goes, no, I left it in the hotel. I said, fine, take mine. I gave her my phone. I said, just you know, hold on to it. I want you to have a phone if you're going for a walk. So I take off. I went the wrong direction. The trail ended about three quarters of a mile. So I turned around. I saw Lisa coming up and I'd had some thoughts for a talk, a book, a sermon, something. So I came up to Lisa, hey, hey, hon, the, the trail ends up here. We went the wrong direction. You should turn around and go out this way. I go, but, but can I get my phone back? I have some thoughts I want to put in the notes section so I can clear my mind and just, if God gives me something else, I can write it down. She goes, sure. 
And so she takes it where she was holding it, which was in her jog bra. Now I'd been married to her for 30 years at this point, And I'd had that piece of plastic for about two. But suddenly as I saw her pull it out, there was just this aura because of where it had been. I mean, I'm losing my train of thought. I don't remember my password. It was before there was facial recognition. I'm like, um, let me think. Lisa's going, what, what? I, I don't know, just give me a moment. And Lisa starts laughing and I start laughing. What's even more important, I believe God is laughing. Saying this is so good in marriage. We're so messed up. We're so afraid of, of, of lust for some good reasons that we've often lost the, the, the joy and pleasure of desiring each other in marriage. And so it's the Bible's strong language saying, I don't want you to lose that. I'm warning you away from this, but it's good here. Just channel it in the right direction. One of my former teachers, a renowned Old Testament biblical scholar, Dr. Bruce Waltke said this, the teacher here admonishes that inhibitions be left behind in the marriage bed. Be captivated by her love. And actually the Song of Songs emphasizes this again in Song of Songs chapter five, verse one. It's literally the picture of God looking at a married couple making love. And what God doesn't say is, oh, come on guys, would you invent Scrabble or, or, or pick up Yahtzee or this is ridiculous? It's not what God says. He looks at him and he says, eat your fill, oh lovers. Be drunk with love. What God says to them, you know what? Life isn't always easy. There's a lot of responsibilities in marriage. I want you to feast on this moment. Taste it, smell it, enjoy it. Make yourself feel completely satisfied. And yeah, you're gonna feel like you're losing control and it gets a little bit scary. But you can be intoxicated with your desire for your spouse within marriage it's a holy, sacred thing to do. So we put all of this together. The sexual relationship between husband and wife described as the song of songs, God telling us no other human song like it. A woman describing her husband making love to her as the highest pleasure she has, better than wine. A man's desire for his wife compared to stallions excited by the mares. A morally permissible love ecstasy and being encouraged by God to feast on passion, to get drunk in our desire for each other. Does this sound like a God who's saying, leave it alone? Or a God who's trying to reveal to us, I made something really creative and good and wonderful, and I want you to embrace it and revel in it and rejoice in it and thank me and worship me for it. That's what God is revealing. But here's the thing. The very thing that makes sex so powerful in marriage, so wonderful in marriage, is what makes it so dangerous prior to marriage. I could go on for 20 minutes here. I only have time for one illustration. A woman's brain can have up to 10 times more oxytocin than a man's brain. That's extreme level. She's a higher one and her husband would be lower. Oxytocin has been called the cuddle chemical. It creates feelings of bonding and warmth and, and, and loyalty and connection. Because women just walk around with more of it, that's why you often tend to be better at relationships. 
You see this in a coffee shop. If two women are talking and one's distressed, they might be looking intensely into each other's eyes. The one's really hurting. The other woman might be patting her hand. You don't usually see two guys in a Starbucks having a conversation like that. There's one time in human experience when a husband's level of oxytocin will begin to get that close to that of his wife and it's immediately following a sexual encounter. Our brains are flooded with oxytocin and just neurologically, it's just a scientific fact. We will never feel closer to our wives than at that moment. And it does all kinds of wonderful things to our brain chemistry. Men, it literally makes us find our wife to be the most attractive woman in the world and other women less attractive, which means if we're being mentally faithful and faithful in every way and having regular relations with our wife, we're literally training our brains to find our brides to be the most beautiful woman in the world. And every wife deserves to have one man think of her that way. And every man who thinks of his wife that way is about the most satisfied husband you can find. Now, while this cements a relationship because it keeps rebonding us to each other, because women, you get a bump in oxytocin too. You just, you don't notice it quite as much because you're already up there, but it does the same for you. But you could see why you don't want to rebond with somebody that you're testing because you're confusing your brain. You see these red flags, you see these signals, danger, 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 but you're training your brain. Like, 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 bond, 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 before you're ready to bond. And sex can bring you into a marriage that is unwise rather than something that is wise, which may be why Christianity throughout its history has taught for 2,000 years that sex is reserved for marriage between a husband and wife. Now, I know people are questioning that today, but look, we're, let me just say, for Baptists, tradition isn't everything, but it's not nothing. And for those that say they're being the big voices of modern Christianity, before we go back and say for 2,000 years, the church has got this wrong and misled people and lied to people, we better have a good reason to believe this isn't what the Bible teaches because our authority doesn't come from what we want to be true or what we've always believed is true. We talked about this last week, but what the Bible says is true. And the Bible's pretty clear that God reserves sex for marriage, especially for Christians. If you go back to the book of Acts, when the Jewish church was merging with the Gentile church, they were trying to figure out, the apostles were, what do we keep and what do we put aside? They didn't keep the ceremonial stuff or all the Jewish stuff, the Sabbath and circumcision and the, the food laws and all of that. But they did tell the Gentile churches, okay, there's something we want you to do differently. Here are the three things that they kept. Acts 15, 29. You must abstain from food offered to idols, which we don't really have anymore, from consuming blood. Now, it's not talking about a rare state. It's in ceremonies where they would drink just blood. I mean, it's gross and that's what they would do. And from sexual immorality. So we're freed from a lot of the ceremonial stuff you see in the Old Testament. But the elders, the apostles of the first century church said, but not sexual immorality. Because they knew in Gentile culture, men for, for sex, men had um, wives to bear children and to raise a family, but it was renowned that they would have mistresses or prostitutes. It wasn't looked at, and they, and they said, no, you can't bring that. Christians are different. 
We reserve sex for marriage. And Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 4. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Now, I'm not lecturing the world on what they should do with their sexual desires, but Paul is saying, for those of you who call yourself Christians, we're different. God made us to be different. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. He then warns, the Lord will punish those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And some might say, okay, that's our parents' generation. This is just human tradition. It doesn't really matter today. And Paul kind of takes that away with the last sentence. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but who? God. Now, the word for immorality there is pornea in Greek. Kurt talked about this when we did 1 Corinthians 6. It was used in Judeo-Christian literature. Everybody thought of it as any form of sex outside of marriage. Extramarital sex, premarital sex, prostitutes, any of that would be under the rubric that Paul says this is not appropriate for Christians. Now, today's culture, because they removed God as a creator, what, what makes sex okay? In today's culture, it would be, do you have two consenting adults? Consent matters. Well, consent should, of course. But if you're a Christian, it's not enough for two people to consent. We have to ask, does God consent? We just sang about God as our king. Does God consent to what I'm doing? Because in God's view, having sex with someone that I'm not married to hurts them. Even if they ask for it. Even if they seem to be enjoying it, it grieves the heart of God. And as a Christian, I don't want to grieve the heart of God. Because it's not just a physical act. It's not playing ping pong. Paul explained in 1 Corinthians 6 why we don't have sex with prostitutes. He says we become one. Now, I know that raises a whole host of questions I don't have time to get to. But, but the one point I want to make from that when he says flee sexual immorality is that it's not just this casual physical act. There are spiritual realities. He, he understands what the brain does and he says you've got to flee from that. It's not what God designed you for. So, trying to summarize this. Singles and marrieds. I want to get God's message here. God designed your body for sexual pleasure. You have body parts designed, particularly women, for no other purpose than pleasure. God gave you hormones that make you desire sexual pleasure. He made various parts of your body and your skin come alive with sexual touch. He gave you brains that even thinking about sex could be like shooting electricity into your brain. That's all good and holy and sacred because God designed your body, your hormones, and your brain. And he called it good. It is not shameful. It is not a problem. It's God's design. But sex is like nuclear power. It can light up a city or it can blow up a country. And Paul is saying, I want it to light up your life. I want it to be a blessing, not to blow up your life. 
So how do you learn to manage it? In her podcast, Love and Relationships, Deborah Fileta quotes a father. I love how he went through this with his sons. What does this mean? If, if sex is good, if sexual pleasure is good, but as singles, you've got to wait. Here's what he said to his sons. Learn to thank God for sexual pleasure, whether it's in a dream. Let me just pause here with the young men. If you have a dream and there's pleasure, and even if there's sexual pleasure, you have not sinned. You have not done anything wrong. There's nothing to ask forgiveness for. There's no shame. Your body is doing what God designed it to do. Sexual pleasure isn't wrong. You didn't choose that. It happened. You can even thank God. Felt good. Well, take it as a gift. That's what God is doing. It's not shameful. Whether it's holding hands when it first happens, it's like there's this electricity, or that first kiss, whatever. He goes, you can thank God for that, but here's what I love the twist. But if you can't thank God for it, don't do it. Your conscience is a poor guide because culture influences your conscience, but gratitude can be used by the spirit to direct you. So as worshiping God, the creator, if I'm experiencing sex as God created me to experience sex, I thank him, I worship him. If I can't thank him and worship him for it, I don't do it. So this directly ties sex to worship and to being a Christian who acknowledges the creator, if we're believers. Now, Ben and I were planning this out and he very graciously and kindly said, you're gonna talk on sex for marrieds and singles in 30 minutes or less, right? I, I, I know I, I, I fail at that. So just two quick things, because follow up, I'm probably raising more questions. I've got a book coming out next week. I usually don't mention that, but I go into a lot more than I do here. But more, I want the singles to know a podcast Deborah Fileta does, because there are a lot of questions. She's a licensed counselor, a believer. She has two podcasts in particular. You have to scroll way down. If you're young enough to want this, you know how to do this on iTunes or Apple, whatever. Um, two podcast sessions to listen to in particular, Sex Drive and The Single Life is a great one. Uh, what does it mean that God created me to be sexual, but I have to wait? And then that famous question, how far is too far? She answers it from a biblical perspective and a counselor's perspective. But let me then end with the marrieds. If everything I've said is true, and God said, this is good, and I want you to use it, and there's a reason. We need to be careful, because I swear, after we have two or three kids, I swear they make a pact. We must never let them have sex again. They do, don't they? It's like, I don't know if they're worried about the will getting diluted, or we giving birth to some demon spawn, and so they're creative. Okay, tonight you have a nightmare. Tomorrow night you have you know, a, a headache. Friday night's a dangerous night. Invite that insomniac friend who will camp out by the master bedroom. Whatever we do, keep them. And, and we have to say, you know what? You're going to lose. <laughs> I'm going to let God direct me, not you. And sometimes you have to be intentional. Years ago, when my dad was retiring, he took all of us kids and the grandkids on a Caribbean cruise, which was a great time. I mean, it's a romantic vacation. You're sailing away from Miami as the sun is setting. They're playing reggae music. Everybody's in beach gear. It's so romantic. But we were in an interior cabin with our two daughters. And they were just a little too old for us to pretend they might be asleep or not. No, it just would not have been kind. And we had a conundrum because they give them key cards and you can't lock them out. 
And so all week we're frustrated. It's a romantic vacation. We want to act like a married couple one time. And these kids that we love are frustrating us. So it's the last full day of the cruise. And Lisa made a huge concession. You know Lisa, the organic, everything. But there's this one restaurant that had a line. It's called Johnny Rockets. They sell hot dogs and hamburgers and milkshakes. And because it was the only restaurant that had a line, we got in line and I said to my kids, remember they had key cards, kids, your mother and father have an errand to run, which was true. I wanna make it clear, you will not leave this restaurant until we're back. Is that understood? Sure, okay. If you get to the front of the line and we're not back, go ahead and let her seat you. You can, you can order your meal because if you try to find us, you might go up that staircase, we're coming down this staircase and we'll lose our place and have to go to the end. And aren't we all really hungry? So I just wanna make it clear, you will stay here until we're back. Okay. Now, if you finish your meal, <laughs> Ben, I'll cruise, we don't want fast food. I go, you can get, I'll buy you any dessert you want. You want the banana split, you want a fl- I will buy you this boat if you just promise me you're gonna stay here until we're back. And they did. And here's the thing, I look back, I mean, decades ago, and it was kind of fun saying they lost, this time we made it happen. But I just remember that later in the evening, the bonding that Lisa and I felt, we're on vacation with our kids, we like them again. (laughs) (laughs) And then we look at each other with just that delicious marital smile. We did it, we were there, this is good. Life is good. Marriage isn't always easy. But God gives us this, let's use this, let's celebrate it as God celebrates it. And if you're single, wait, make a wise choice and then experience the wonder of marital sexuality. Let's pray.